Nestled in the Ecuadorian subtropics, a small community slumbers in peace. Rain snaps onto tin roofs and runs in tiny rivers off the rusted edges. Sopping gray clouds have drooped overhead for days now. Even the chickens that usually squawk from their backyard pens are sleeping. In the main plaza, water congregates in the cracks of the old bricks. Men who usually gather to drink moonshine and play cards here every night returned home hours ago. The sky has been dripping for months, steadily nursed by El Nino's titanic moisture. The volume of water has churned the sediment at the bottom of the Quindigua, staining the water a deep red. That's what gives Bukoyaku its name. Buka, which translates from Quechua to red, Yaku, meaning water. Upstream from Pukayaku, a few miles outside of town, the earth is beginning to sag, and the hills and their cliffed edges have become waterlogged. The rain is pounding, unrelenting and heavy. And then, a rumbling. Many miles away, one of Ecuador's tectonic plates shudders, shocking the coast and sending vibrations pulsing into the heart of the country. In Pukayaku, the chickens begin to scream and the dogs howl, maybe waking a few light sleepers. But most of the 1,200 people who live in Pukayaku don't stir. But the hill does. That small shift from hundreds of miles away is just enough. Just enough to suddenly dislodge the tons of earth and rock that had so far managed to cling to the hill for millennia. This mass careens down the slope and into the river so fast and heavy that it instantly creates a dam. The Quindigua has been plugged, and behind this wall, water begins to build, higher and higher and higher. It doesn't take long until the dam gives way. The tidal wave of muddy water carrying tree trunks and stones hurtles downstream. The wave approaches Pukayaku. Some people might stir from the strange roar approaching from the distance. The few who have been expecting this might even have time to wake their families. But when the river arrives, it stops for no one. The small earthen levee that for so many years has protected Pukayaku from the Kindigua is breached, smashed by the force and volume of the water. The houses built on the other side don't stand much of a chance. The sturdier concrete homes fill, the weaker ones crumble. Anything not tied down is swallowed into the Quindigua. In the center of town, the plaza fills like an Olympic pool. The smell is almost worse than the sound a horrible cocktail of fresh soil and sewage. In the church courtyard, the statue of St. Peter, usually standing proudly on its six-foot-tall pedestal, is ankle-deep, helplessly watching over his drowned parishioners. This is the prophecy of Pukayaku, the story of what could come true or of what may never come to pass. The threat of catastrophe that, in the words of a former priest who served this town for years, could, quote, wipe 
Pukayaku off of the map. This is not a story of disaster. This is not a story about a poor, vulnerable community teetering on the edge of the precipice of climate change-induced flooding, or even triumphantly overcoming their own marginalization. Some of that does happen, but really, this is a story about a place and the people who live there, and the things that they fear and desire, notice and ignore. The times in between disaster, where all of us live the majority of our lives. The edges that we walk along every day that, by necessity, feel normal, at least most of the time. A game of risk that we might not always realize we're playing. And this is Riskland, a three-part podcast series from Earth Refuge, written and hosted by me, Aubrey Calloway. Just 150 miles away from Bukayaku is Ecuador's capital city, Quito. And there, you'll find a place called the Yaku Water Park Museum. It's a giant terrace structure full of interactive, child-friendly exhibits about its titular topic, water. But tucked back in a deserted corner of the lively museum, there's a game. A life-size Candyland-type game board printed on foam flooring. On it, a mural of disaster. Along the game's path, cartoon volcanoes explode and cliffsides crumble onto small, tin-roofed homes. And well, it looks a lot like Pukayaku. Riesgo Yakta, its title reads. Riskland. The rules of Riskland are simple. Begin by stepping up to the starting line. Ahead of you, you see a trail of squares. Roll the dice to see where you'll land. I've known Pukayaku for six years now, almost a quarter of my life. In 2015, I was a junior in high school in Houston, Texas, where I signed up for a language immersion program that placed U.S. teens with homestay families in Latin America. It was a random pairing, Pukayaku and I. But even though my eight weeks there ended... My relationship with the town, my host family, and friends there didn't. We stayed in contact over WhatsApp and Facebook through my high school years, and then into college, where I pursued degrees in sociology and international development studies. After Hurricane Harvey struck Houston, I turned to a field of research called disaster studies for answers. I wanted to understand how communities like mine or navigating an increasingly uncertain landscape of floods and fires and quakes. And then I got a Facebook message. It was from Padre Wilton, the priest in Pukayaku. He told me that an earthquake and severe flooding had destroyed two homes and a bridge in the area. I helped organize a small fundraiser for the affected families, but Padre Wilton warned me that this would not be the last disaster in Pukayaku, nor the worst. The Kindigua River, he typed, is a ticking time bomb. The river always returns. So the next year, when it came time to write a thesis, I got on a plane to Quito. Three bus rides later, and I was back in Pukayaku. And that's where this story starts. Actually, we're going to start at the end of my three months of field work. With a party.
It's the eve of the August festival, Pukayaku's birthday celebration, a week full of events that will swell this normally quiet town in celebration of its official founding 70 years ago. Caravans of motorcycles, horses, and shuttle trucks with extra wide beds file into town. Next to the river, a wide swath of tangled grasses have been cleared for extra parking. The festival kicks off with a parade. The layers of participants line up along the streets on the outer perimeter of town. Bands of children anxiously practice their dances in knitted rainbow masks and fringed chaps. Elected officials that represent Pukayaku at various levels of government straighten their ties and kiss the cheeks of old women who hobble by to find a spot in the crowds filling the sidewalks. I spot Margarita, Doña Ceci, and other women from my neighborhood lining up with the other Catholic Sunday school organizers. Finally, flutes begin pumping from the speakers dotted around town, and the masked children begin to dance. The parade unfolds like an accordion, snaking along Pukayaku's cobblestone streets as it wraps around town. It doesn't take more than an hour for the hundreds of people in the procession to lap the entire loop. Pukayaku isn't big, but it knows how to host a birthday party. Now, roll the dice. You land on a square that reads, You and your family have built your home in a safe place, following all the proper building codes. You may roll again. Norma and Patricio live on an invisible edge. I first met them a few weeks before the start of the August festival. It was a quiet, dry afternoon, and as I walk up to their house, I wave and they invite me up onto their wooden porch. The wood is splintered and creaky, and I'm careful to only put my weight on the more solid-looking planks. We were living in the recinto of Esmeraldas. That's where my father lives. The school is really far from where we lived, and the little ones couldn't keep walking there and back, and that's why we bought this place. Norma and Patricio moved to town from one of Pukayaku's tiny satellite farming communities 18 years ago. Finding a newer home built from modern concrete and glass was out of reach. Wanting to send their kids to a better, closer school, they bought what they could afford. How could they have known about the dangers that lurked around the corner in their new home? This issue of natural disasters, it affects us a lot in winter time. It affects us a lot because we live on the side of a river which rises a lot. In the winter, it's the ugliest. When the water enters the house, we can't sleep peacefully. Today, the river is nothing more than a trickling stream. The ditch that runs along the side of Norma and Patricio's home flows with a sliver of clear, cool water. The house, built up on stilts of brick, hangs over it, lofted six or so feet above the water. The idea that this stream could keep them up at night, well, it's hard to imagine. During winter time, it rains from morning to afternoon. And sometimes through the night, we don't sleep at all because we're watching to make sure nothing happens. It seems like this is the most dangerous house in the area. Their neighbor, Margarita, agrees. 
That first house over there, right now it seems like it doesn't have anything to do with the stream. Margarita lives a minute's walk away, but it might as well be a different world of risk entirely. While Norma and Patricio live at the base of the hill, Margarita sits perched on its peak. From up there, her view of her neighbor's precarity is crystal clear. See, one day, the stream came up to the edge of the house, and the woman with her family were inside sleeping. How it rained and rained, and they weren't leaving, and the water was almost up to the height of the bridge, right up to the edge of the house. That night, many years ago, the prophecy seemed to be coming true for Norma and Patricio. The ditch swelled with sludge mixed with branches, dirt, and sewage, bringing the water's edge to their doorstep. Upstairs, their family slept peacefully as the water stalked them from below. My husband wanted to go into the house because the water was everywhere. Leave, leave, I said, and we threw a rock so that the woman could hear us. Senora, the stream is coming to your house. And she got her kids and left and came over here. Norma, Patricio, and their children were safe. Their house continued to stand. But the chickens they kept underneath the base of the house, between the stilts, were gone. Drowned and deposited somewhere downstream far outside of town. Their outhouse was filled with mud and debris. Clearing it would be a horribly unpleasant task. And within the cracks of the structure itself, the wood began to rot. Years later, on the parched day of our interview, Norma wants me to see past the tranquil scene before us, to feel the anxiety, anticipate the terror, and envision the solution with them. Here, a small wall to protect the house. We need a small wall up to this level of the bridge for protection. Norma and Patricio are stuck between a rock and a wet place. Moving is out of reach. The house is worth next to nothing, and the income from their small plot of land isn't enough to grant them the mobility to move even 50 or so feet up the hill where Margarita sits. The most that they can hope for is a barrier. We walk over to the edge of the porch and look over the side at the trickle of water beneath us. Here, like that. Like that. A little thinner. You could do half of that. A few feet of concrete to harden the porous and unpredictable edge on which they live. That's all it would take. A day's worth of labor, a few hundred dollars, to give them the peace of mind that something stands between them and the water besides the will of God. So, a few weeks after I meet Norma Patricio, we all decide to organize a meeting. I invite the town president and the head of public works to their home, and on the eve of the August festival, I arrive at the designated meeting spot by the stream next to their home. And I wait. Five minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. Eventually, it becomes clear that no one's going to show up. 
and I can't really blame them. Who would want to think about disaster when there are streamers to hang and stages to build? So I leave our meeting spot and head back to the central plaza to help decorate. By the time the parade launches the next day, I had forgotten all about the stream. Next player, roll the dice. You've arrived at a bridge in poor condition. Fix it in advance two spaces. If you come early enough in the morning, right across from Nordamon Patricio's house, you can catch the milk truck on its way out of town. Donia Ceci, my host, and I stand waiting for a few minutes. Ceci and I are heading to Solonso, a small farming community, for an interview with the leader there. Five or six other people in yellow rubber boots with rucksacks slung over their shoulders clamber onto the truck. We squeeze in among the squat, hollow drums waiting to be filled with fresh cow's milk. The ride is comfy enough for the first few minutes as we turn off of Norman Patricio Street and leave the limits of Pukayaku. Fifteen minutes later, Ceci wraps the back window to the cab of the truck and the driver begins to slow down. I dismount and help Ceci get down onto the ground. We watch as the truck revs back up, disappearing in front of the plume of ochre dust. I turn and there it is, the Quindigua River, and crossing it, a structure bent and misshapen like a nose that has seen too many fights, the Solonzo Bridge. We're really worried because this is the only form of connection we have to leave to get to Lamana, Bukayaku, Guazaganda, to the different parts of the country. This is Jorge Borjas, president of the Salonso Recinto. In order to meet him, Ceci and I must first get to the other side of the river by crossing this thin slice of steel on which his community has depended for decades. The jugular vein that connects the families who live here to the main road, to trucks taking their milk to market, to their economic lifeblood. Crossing the bridge to get to Solonso and my first interview with Jorge is a disconcerting experience. Mostly it's just loud. The bridge spans the Quindigua River, which at this point in its course has sprawled to about 70 meters wide. The walkway itself is narrow, strung up between a few arch steel cables dug deep into the ground on either bank. As we walk across it, the thin metal sheets lined up like game board squares quake and rattle. At a few points, they've drifted part just wide enough for a misplaced foot to fall through. Past the bridge and along a dirt path, the deep foliage occasionally opens up to a few wooden homes. Dogs too lazy to get up in the afternoon heat bark at us from front porches. Ceci points me to the right house and keeps walking to visit a friend farther down the road. Jorge is already sitting outside. He's a big man with shoots of silver speckling his dark hair. And what I'll come to recognize as his standard attire He's wearing a red cotton shirt, buttoned only up to a few inches above his belly. 
His eyes and posture communicate a profound sense of kindness. I've lived here for about 45 years. When I had just arrived, it was just a tarabita, a cable from one side to the road and a small basket you could pass on. Later, there was a small bridge made of cables and palmwood planks. Later, in 1989, a Swiss humanitarian known here as Donier Suizo would come to Solonso as part of his decades-long bridge-building efforts. But the wooden planks he laid wouldn't last forever. Age rotted the wood and twisted the cables. The metal sheets that replaced the planks spread and subducted like tectonic plates, making it harder to transport Salonzo's wealth of plantains, cacao, and milk. We have to walk down there. That's where the cars stop and we have to carry everything. Jorge's wife steps out of their wooden three-room home and unstacks a plastic chair from the corner of the porch. You can't buy much because you won't be able to carry it back. You lose so much product because you can't get it out. You can carry it for a mile, and once you get out, the product is already damaged. And they pay us what they want, the middlemen. Since the product isn't good anymore, you have to take what they pay you. It's the same with the mill? Yes, everything with this bridge. Everything. Everything. We have always lived isolated here. Jorge's wife leans forward. People have gone into the river, she tells us. A lot of people have, Jorge affirms. Some made it out. Others went the way of Norma and Patricio's chickens. <clears throat> Risk has always existed here with the river, the river Quindigua. It passes through Pukeaku, it passes through Solonzo, it's always overflowed. And many times it's almost taken the suspension bridge. When the El Nino storms come, the waters of the Quindigua churn and lap at Solonzo's swinging lifeline. Families hunker down and pray that the aging braids of steel hold. We have spent a long time working on this. I've spent 20 years asking for a car traversable bridge, and until now we haven't achieved it. Jorge and his community have been chasing the dream of a Bailey Truss bridge for a very long time. It's the same model that the British developed during the Second World War, to ferry tanks across rivers using the most basic tools and materials. Jorge has been fighting to secure one for his own community for 20 years. His ancestors fought for 50 years before him. We've always been so close and they've left us. They've offered. Yes, they've offered it. They come here, we always meet, and in the end, their time in office ends and they haven't done it. They've always betrayed us. For at least 20 years, politicians have arrived in Solonso right before Election Day to pledge their commitment to a Bailey Bridge. After being voted into office in small part by this community, they send their engineers. Pacing the banks of the Quindigua with clipboards and strange devices, they take soil samples and measurements before returning to the city to write up a report. Jorge brings out one of the studies from 2015, printed and bound in a plastic binder. The study outlines the different elements that might threaten the feasibility of a bridge.
We find but this that's area not what Jorge stable. pays attention to. Level of threat Lighting up of the pages of black text are streaks of optimistic pink highlighter. The rest of the binder is full of indecipherable engineering diagrams and charts, describing everything from the flow of the river to the angles of the riverbank. It all exists already on paper. But the truly infuriating part of all of this is that the Salonso-Bailey Bridge is already built, just not in Salonso. At the moment, we already have the structures, the 80-foot Bailey Bridge. It's in Metoc in the support, ah, in the support beam. <laughs> At the moment, we already have the structures, the 80-foot Bailey Bridge. It's in Metoc in the bodegas of Riobamba, that's where it is. But to get this structure, we have to build the support beams, the wall on which we'll mount the bridge. Then the bridge will arrive. This is a substantial cost, more or less $3,000 to construct the beams. We're asking the authorities for help, and I hope to God, you know, I hope to God they help us. According to Jorge, as we speak, their Bailey Bridge is sitting in a workshop in a city, providing passage for no one. All that's left to do is build the support beams, the three massive columns of cement on which the Bailey Bridge will rest. But building those columns is expensive, and the votes of Salonso's 20 or so families aren't worth quite that much to these politicians. This terrain is just too risky to build on, they say. What if the river washes away the new bridge, they ask. We need to conduct more studies, they decide. As certain as El Nino, and as regular as election cycles, this decades-long ceremony of uncertainty and hope continues. And as I talk to Jorge, it seems like it's beginning anew. There's a meeting the 4th of July in La Mana. It's a technical one to see how we can put together this bridge. So we want to see if the Perfecta will help us in this way. We still don't know. We're still hanging in the balance. In two weeks, Jorge will meet with the governor in the city to discuss the fate of his community, where the cycle might finally be broken. And in two weeks... Riskland will return for episode two, when a man with his livelihood hanging off the edge of the Quindigua denies that there's any risk at all. And a former mayor builds a wall to protect his community, but fails to save his own family. This has been Riskland, a three-part podcast series from Earth Refuge, written and hosted by me, Aubrey Calloway. Our graphics were designed by Lise Rigaud, with story editing by Alison Berenger of the Rough Cut Collective. Our theme music was composed by Ruth Allen. Voiceover work by J.P. Mayer, Shrin Chowdhury, Laura Calloway, Patricia Garza, and Alex Hirsch. You can learn more about Earth Refuge at earthrefuge.org. There, you'll also find the Spanish-language version of this episode, translated and hosted by Patricia Garza. Until next time.